Please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 4. <clears throat> Last week we took up the first six verses of this chapter, and in that passage we saw that James had laid out for us the cause of our conflicts. He had started out by asking, the author asks a question in Chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And then he proceeded to tell us the reason for those quarrels and fights, the reason for that conflict. And he said that it comes from our own heart's desires, our passions and pleasures that we selfishly seek after. James speaks in strong words, especially in uh, verse 4, where he says, you adulterous people. In doing that, he charged them, his readers, and in a sense, those of us to which it applies, of forsaking the covenant with God and the, the God of the covenant in the way that the people of old under the old covenant did when they forsook the Lord and served the idols of the nations around them. James told his readers, and he tells us, in no uncertain terms that we cannot be a friend of the world, for if we adopt the values and the goals of the world and seek to be a friend of the world, then we are not a friend of God. But even as he uses strong words to describe sin and the cause of conflicts, he gives us good news. And in verse 6, he reminded us of the grace, the more grace, the superabundant grace, I like to call it, the grace that is ours in Christ, grace to supply our every need, grace to deal with our sin, grace to deal with our conflict. But James, the ever practical author, does give us something to do in light of that grace. He doesn't say that do this and earn the grace. He doesn't go against the rest of Scripture, no. He says, in light of that grace that you have been given, here is what you need to do. So before I preach my whole sermon, let me pause and, and pray and ask God's blessing upon the Word, and then we'll read our text together. Let us bow. Gracious and merciful God, we thank you for your Word, and we thank you for the way it speaks to us. Lord, we need it. We need your Spirit to apply it to our lives, and Lord, we thank you that your Word is quick and powerful and sharper than a sword. And Lord, we ask, O oh God, that, that by your Spirit, that the sword of your Spirit would reach our hearts, Lord, and expose that part, those parts of our heart that need to be seen and need to be dealt with. Lord, we ask that you would do your work through your word, by your spirit. Lord, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James 4, beginning with verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or, you, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us this morning in his holy and inerrant word. If you were here last week or heard the sermon online, you remember that we closed that sermon thinking about the problem and the cause of conflict and also looking forward to the cure for conflict that we're going to look at this morning. And we looked at verse 6 as somewhat of a transitional verse, and I tried to paint the picture for you as of of James, the author of this book, as, as getting ready to give us the cure, but he wanted to establish in our minds the basis on which this cure worked. And we said that, that yes, it is all of God's grace that we see there, that God gives more grace, but also he says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we see this idea of humility permeating the second half of this passage, verses 7 through 12, that we are going to look at this morning. We have seen God's sufficiency in verse 6, and now we need to see our responsibility. We notice in verse 7 that word that, that Pastor Greco is so good about calling to our attention, the word therefore. We need to see what it is therefore. And it is based upon the grace that is ours in Christ that he says in verse 6 that we are therefore to act, to do these things that he lays out in verses 7 through 12. James is not afraid to tell us how to live, what to do, but it's not that James does not care about our hearts because we've seen he calls us to look at our own hearts. And really it is from the heart that all of this comes. And he says that a heart in the right place will act in a way that looks like Jesus. If you have the notes in front of you that are laid out, you see we have, we're going to try to see this text under three headings, humble allegiance, humble repentance, and humble speech. And if you can notice from the outline, that idea of humility is really front and center throughout this text. We see it in verse 7, we see it again in verse 10, and really in those four verses, verses 7 to 10, James fires ten, at least 10 commands at us just very rapidly saying, this is what you need to do. This is the cure for conflict. This is how the Christian life should look. The idea of submission that we see in verse 7 is really not too popular today. Man is typically about amassing power and control to himself. But submission means to yield to authority. It means to yield to someone or someone else's power and authority. 
And James tells us there in verse 7 that we should submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We know as believers, if you have read the word, you know that Christ is the true king, that God is the Lord of all. God is the God of all creation. Therefore, we as followers of God should submit to his rule and authority. It is the right and proper response to God as the sovereign king and Lord. Submission to God is this idea is really at the heart of true discipleship. Just as the source of conflict, James has told us, rests within our own selves, our own heart's desires, me not getting my way, me not getting what I want, my desires not being indulged, so humility holds the key in submission of those desires to God. Now, there's one thing I would like to clarify, that we often think of submission as being the end of a struggle. And for some of us, who have been uh, perhaps resistant to God's call of grace upon our life, and perhaps we, we lived a life of rebellion to God before, we, before God and His grace drew us to Himself, and that submission was an end of that struggle of fighting against God. But for the Christian life, submission should be more than just an end of struggle. It's not like a cruel master who beats an animal into submission. No, there's this idea really of enlistment, as one commentator said, where he said that the taking up of allegiance to a great superior in order to engage in the fight under his banner. It's like joining the forces of a king whom you love and whom you rightly submit to. You enlist in his forces. It's the giving up of ourselves, our all, into the service of another. But James, as we've said, is so practical. How then do we do this? What steps might we take to fulfill this command of submission? Well, James gives us two things to do. One is negative, one is positive. He says, resist this, embrace this. And both of those things, both parts of that, have practical results attached to it. The first is this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now that sounds very easy and simple to say. It's somewhat harder to do at times. To resist means to stand against, to oppose, to submit to God's authority. You must resist the authority of the one who is the adversary of God. That is the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 calls him our enemy, our adversary, and says that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, we can make too much of the devil, where the devil consumes our speech, and we see, we see the devil in everything. And Scripture doesn't really do that, though. The Scripture talks much more about God and His rule and His power and His authority over His creation. But Scripture is also very clear that the devil is present, that the devil is God's adversary. But we see there in the early chapters of Job that the devil was submissive to God even in what the devil wanted to do to Job. That God's power and authority rules over all. So we should not make too much of the devil. Neither should we make too little of him as well. 
As one wise man said, sticking your head in the sand in the presence of a lion may dull the sound of his roaring, but it does not lessen your chances of being devoured. In light of that scripture from 1 Peter, we need to recognize that the devil is present and we are called, James calls us, to resist him. Scripture doesn't tell us everything that we think we might would like to know about the devil, but it tells us what we need to know. We know that he is God's enemy. We know that, that he is one who twists the words of God as he did with Eve. He is one who plants doubts in the minds of God's children about God's goodness as he did with Eve as well as with others. And he is the one who brings calamity and trial upon God's people as he did with Job. Ephesians 6 gives us practical ways in which we might resist the devil. It says to take up the whole armor of God by which you can withstand the schemes of the devil. James tells us that we are to resist, but he gives us the result. He gives us the, the encouragement that when we resist, the devil will flee. Then James goes on with the positive command and result. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a comforting promise as well as a command that is for us. In the Old Testament, this idea of drawing near was, was in reference to worship. The, the people of God were called to draw near to God in offering up of the sacrifices and in obeying him in the way that he has prescribed to worship him. To worship him is to show allegiance. It is to submit to him as the true and rightful king. For us to seek to draw near to him, and it, we do that through the means of grace, as we've already heard mentioned in our worship this morning. The word, sacraments, and prayer. This is what we're doing here this morning in seeking to draw near. In our worship, in, in seeking God through the means that he has appointed in his word. And we should feed ourselves upon God's word throughout the week. Just as we cannot eat one meal a week and expect to, to thrive physically for seven days, neither should we expect to come here on the Lord's Day and partake of his goodness through our corporate worship and expect to thrive spiritually throughout the week. We need God's word every day. And I implore you as children of God to be in God's word and to seek his face in and through his word and in prayer. And then the blessed result that comes from this, draw near to God, James says, and God will draw near to you. When we draw near, he draws near. God reminds us here in James, as he reminded the people of old in Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And we should remember that these two things, the resisting the devil and the drawing near to God, they work in tandem. As we resist the devil, we are drawing near to God. We are submitting to God as we resist temptation and seek to be wise to the devil's lies. The best resistance to the devil is submission to the king of kings. How do we educate ourselves about 
the schemes of the devil, the lies of the devil that Scripture tells us we need to be on guard against, well, we learn in God's Word the truth about God so we can recognize those lies when they come. How do we resist temptation when it comes? Psalm 119 tells us to hide God's Word in our hearts, to meditate upon it, to memorize it even, to reflect upon it, to hold it near to us so that we can stand against sin, that we might not sin against God. James then proceeds to tell us more about the nature of drawing near. As we draw near to God, we learn more of His righteousness. We learn more of His holiness And we see ourselves then in relation to his holiness. When Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his glory filling the temple, he was undone, Scripture says. He fell on his face. He recognized his sin. He said his lips were unclean and he recognized the sin of his people as well. So drawing near to God should help us to see our sin and lead us to humble repentance. James has rebuked his readers for their selfish desires, which has led to to various conflicts, to quarrels and fights. James first calls us to submission, and then he calls us to humble repentance. Turning to God involves turning from sin We must see that there's two components of repentance that James gives us. There's the outward component in verse 8, there where it says the cleansing of your hands. And there's an inward component of it as well, the purifying of the heart. Repentance means that we address both our behaviors and our beliefs. Both our actions and our attitudes. Both our hands as well as our hearts. And this is a lot more about just good hygiene or preventing coronavirus. One of our elders said that we should put James 4.8 on all the doors in the church. Wash your hands, you sinners. No, James is not calling us just to personal hygiene. James is talking about our hearts. James is talking about something that, that, that works out because of what God has done in our hearts. We seek to, to have God cleanse our hearts and that plays out in what we do. It's our beliefs and our actions, our attitudes and our actions. Repentance means to turn. These two parts of repentance are often seen together in the Old Testament in the rituals that the priest would perform of the, of the washing. We see it directly in Psalm 24, which asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. James gives these two commands to us in, 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 chapter, or in verse 8, very very straightforward. If you look at the Greek, he, he doesn't even use the articles there. He says, if, if we were to translate it rather woodenly and accurately, it would be to wash hands, sinners, and purify hearts, double-minded. In, in the same way that he used the, the same kind of direct, straightforward, staccato language of, of verse 4, where he says, adulteresses, He's he's grabbing their attention. Here he's grabbing our attention and he's saying, wash your hands, purify your hearts, change. There is a need for this. Submit to God and humbly repent. Now this word repentance is 
not actually used in this, but it's, easily to, it's easy to see from the context that this is what James is talking about. What is the way from pride and, and the turning away from God that he describes in these first four verses that we read and talked about last week? What is the way from that to the submission that he commands in verse 7? It's the way of humility. It's the way of repentance. And verse 9 lays it out in, in very graphic terms, really, what it looks like. This is what godly repentance looks like. James is saying in, in that verse, he, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The lexical definition of repentance is a change of mind of those who have begun to abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces a recognition of sin, sorrow for it, and hearty amendment. In other words, when we truly repent, we recognize how our sin has offended a holy God. That's like what we sang in, our, in, in, in the song this morning from Psalm 51. King David recognized his sin was against a holy God. We recognize our sin, first of all. We grieve over it, as he says here in verse 9. And then we turn from it and seek to change our direction. It's a change of mind resulting in a change of behavior. And James is saying here, grieve over your sin. Recognize your sin. Reflect upon it. See how unlike God it is. Mourn it. Allow it to affect your emotions. Not everyone will grieve over their sin in the same way, so I don't offer you a prescription of what grief might look like in your context. But when we as God's children, redeemed and called to himself, recognize parts of our heart, things within us that look so unlike the holy God that we serve, the one who has shown us mercy, it should grieve us. It should cut us to the heart. We should recognize the sinfulness of our sin. And if we fail to do so, we need to ask God to show us the sinfulness of our sin. Repentance of course, is necessary for entrance into the life of the believer. Repentance and faith are the twin graces, we say, of conversion. That those are the things in which God uses in us and calls upon us to exercise, to, to become followers of Christ. But they are also things that mark the life of believers. Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses, he says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not something we do once and we're done repenting. No, it should mark the life of believers. Because yes, we are, we are forgiven of our sins. We are offered pardon for sin. We are free from the power of sin. Yet the presence of sin is very much still in our lives as believers. So therefore, this is why we do this. Week by week, have a time of confession where we recognize our sinfulness before a righteous and holy God and come and seek forgiveness. Repentance should be a distinguishing mark of all true believers. 
And as growing believers, we should become more aware of our sins. And on one hand, that sounds discouraging. Because to say to you, you know, brother or sister in Christ, you need to repent. And oh, by the way, tomorrow you're going to learn of more sin in your life. But yet remember that that is a sweet grace of God upon you. Because what he is doing is growing you. He is sanctifying you. He is at work in his people, even in all the ugliness and messiness of our lives and our relationship. God is at work and he is continuing to sanctify his people. So we as God's people need to embrace that and honestly reflect upon our lives and be willing and eager to repent. Husbands and fathers, let me ask you, when was the last time your wife heard you repent? When was the last time your children heard you say, I'm sorry, I spoke in that way? Young people, when was the last time you, without your parents prompting, said to your sibling, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I spoke to you in that way. I'm sorry I had the attitude that I did. Perhaps it's a friend you've offended. When was the last time you repented? How often do you begin your prayers? Lord, show me my sin. Help me honestly repent before you. And if you've been in conflict with someone else, either in your home or in the church, there's a strong possibility you need to repent. Even, even I might add, if you are the one that has been sinned against. I'm not saying this automatically, but so often, even when we are sinned against in relationships, that causes sin to come out of our own hearts. And often we respond in sinful ways to hurt and sin against us. So may God give us grace to repent easily and freely and honestly before God. The path from pride to humility and submission is the path of repentance. Repentance involves external change of action that flows out of a heart that has been grieved by sin and then cleansed by the Spirit of God. James then closes this section in verse 10 by again repeating, humble yourselves, that idea of humility, submission. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, what's he saying here? Is he saying that, that this is uh, a, a ticket to the top of the pile? Is he saying you're going to be the CEO of your company tomorrow? Is he going to say, say this is, you're going to be rich and famous and, and, and never going to have any needs? No. James does not do that. He started this whole book by talking about our trials. So James is not automatically saying that. What he's saying is that the person that God can use and will use is the humble person. And God's value system is so much different than the world's. The world promotes those that step on other people, honestly, often, to get to the top. But God's value system is different. If you look at the, at the song of Hannah, after God's blessing her with the, the news of Samuel's uh, soon-to-be birth, you look at the song of Mary, which there's, there's much similarity between, between those two songs. What do those women say in their exaltation before God? They say, God has, has exalted the lowly. He has exalted the humble. He has, he has brought low the rich and the powerful and exalted those of low esteem. It's God's way to promote the humble. And God says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Paul told the Corinthians that God chooses, 
chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And James has shown us that the cure for conflicts rests in our submission to God, humble allegiance, and humble repentance. And now we go on to our third point, that of humble speech. Now what we've looked at so far, verses 7 through 10, are a nice, neat package of, of verses. You see them, there's, there's this idea of submission in verse 10, this idea of humility in verse 10, nice little bookends to that passage. So what do we do then with verses 11 and 12? Some commentators treat this as a separate section. I've, I saw, I've seen some preachers preach this text alone, and, and you could do that well. Some tack it on to the next set of verses. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary, deals with it in relation to James uh, 7 through uh, 10. I think I'm in good company then if I'm with Sinclair Ferguson and treating it as such. I think it's important that we think about it in relation to our conflicts. Because when there is conflict, how do we sin? Often we sin with our speech. Often we sin with our tongue. Certainly it comes from our hearts and, and it, we can sin in our mind as well. But James here warns us about evil speaking. James has already warned us about the dangers of the tongue. He said in chapter 1 that we're to be slow to hear, quick to hear, I'm sorry, slow to speak and slow to anger. He spent more time and more verses in chapter 3 talking about the danger of the tongue. He said that it's a, it's a fire, it's something that, that is hard to control, it's hard to contain. Um, God's Word is very concerned about our speech. And James shows really what evil speaking is doing. He's, he's laying out a logical argument, and we have to carefully look at this to see what he is saying. Look with me at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge." Now, before we try to understand the logic of James' argument, one thing we need to point out that I think should be a comfort to us is the fact that he returns to the use of the word brothers. Now, if you were just to, this afternoon, take a few moments to, to leaf through the pages of James, you would see at about every section, every major section of the book, he addresses his readers as brethren or beloved brethren. And so there's this, this term of familiarity and endearment and, and connection with them as fellow believers in Christ. But he has kind of dispensed of that language in verses, um, really in all of chapter 4 up to this point. He's saying, listen, there's sin here. We need to deal with it. This is how you deal with it. You need to submit to God. You need to repent. You need to humble yourselves before God. And now he returns to using that comforting term, brothers. I think there's another reason he does that. He wants his readers and us, he wants us to recognize that we are part of God's family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all on equal footing. In, in my family, I have a brother and, and two sisters in my biological family, and and we kind of have this friendly rivalry about who's the favorite of my mom and dad. My, my parents are still living, and, 
And um, I'm grateful for that, of course. And, and so when we get together or when we, even when we text back and forth, there'll be this friendly banter about who the favorite is. Well, I'm the youngest, so I'm assumed to be the favorite. That's not necessarily the case. But we are really all on equal footing. We are all children. And in the family of God, there is an equality to us. We are all sinners saved by grace. We're all the same in that way. And I think James is, is trying to remind us of that in using that term. So he, he goes on and he says that when you criticize or speak evil of your brother or sister in Christ, you are speaking evil of one for whom Christ died. You are speaking evil of a brother or sister in your family. You have all been shown that more grace that he has talked about in verse 6. And, and to speak ill of a brother or sister in Christ, it's contrary to the new nature that you've been given in Christ when you have been brought into his family. It's not characteristic of the humble Christian that James is calling us to be. Perhaps James had Leviticus 19.16 in mind, and, and I point to that passage because he has quoted uh, Leviticus 19 previously in his book, so so you know that had to be somewhat in the mind of the author. Our, our New Testament author, author sometimes we, we fail to remember that they were steeped in Old Testament Scripture. They were very much shaped by the Old Testament law. And so in Leviticus 19.16, it says, You must not go about spreading slander among your people. You must not endanger the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Slander is false and damaging statements spoken about someone. Believers in Christ are to be known by their love for one another, not their evil words. But I think this evil speaking can go even beyond slander. Slander is, is falsehood meant to tear down someone. But I think, honestly, this evil speaking that James is talking about can be something possibly that, that could be true. Because you know what? We don't have to say everything we know about someone. And often when we seek to share something to tear someone down, what are we doing? We're lifting ourselves up. This is contrary to, to everything James is saying here. He says it's, it's your pride, it's your own self-will, it's, it's your own seeking your own desires that bring these conflicts. And if you're speaking evil about your brother or sister in Christ, you're tearing them down. And in, 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 in turn, you're seeking to raise yourself up. You're speaking evil of one for whom Christ died. And James goes on with his argument saying, when you do that, you're judging that person. You're being judgmental. Now, the, the book of Matthew tells us, or Jesus tells us, judge not that you be not judged. And we often hear that thrown around especially towards us Christians, is saying, you can't judge me, man. I can live however I want. Is James saying that here? No. James is not saying live and let live, just anything goes, because we look at, at the rest of Scripture. We're told how to, to bring challenges to our brothers. We're told even to exhort one another, to challenge one another when, when we need that. Um, Corinthians tells us when and how to, to deal with an erring brother, to, to even remove them from the church if they are unrepentant. So James is certainly not saying that. What James is saying here 
is that there can be within the church and within the hearts of even God's people an evil, critical, harsh, censorious spirit that comes out in evil speaking. Now this might come in, in a variety of ways. And I hesitate even to give you examples, but, but it could be in, in how a person, you know, how they dress or a person's choice of clothing or how they spend their money or how they choose to, to raise their children or, or whether they, 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 they're going to put their babies on a, a schedule of feeding or make them demand feeders. It, it can be, you know, how a person wears their hair or doesn't wear their hair or if they have any hair. It's, it can be a whole variety, garden variety of things of speaking evil against your brother or sister in Christ to tear them down. It might even be over masks. Whether you wear a mask, whether you need a mask, whether you should not wear a mask, whether you're, you're bowing you know, or, or giving your government too much power if you, don't, if you wear a mask. It can be a whole bunch of things of speaking evil against our brother or sister in Christ. But God's law is our judge. So if you are being critical, then you are setting yourself up as the judge and not allowing God to be the judge. That's what James is saying here. Do you see that at the end of verse 11? But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then he goes on in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? So James reminds us that, that we then are not a doer of the law, but a judge of the law. We're judging our neighbor. We're judging our brother or sister in Christ. And we're placing ourselves above the law as a judge. And in doing that, that is usurping the authority of God himself. There's only one lawgiver and judge. And it's not you. And it's not me. It's God alone. Only he can save or condemn. Then James leaves us a question to close this text. Who are you to judge your neighbor? And behind that question is really all he has said so far. In pointing out that, that our conflicts come from our desires that are self-centered. Our desires that are not submissive, submissive to God's grace. Our, our lack of submission. Our lack of repentance. That's all behind that question. The cure for conflict is rooted in humility, in submission to God as our true king and judge. When we err from this position of humility and see our sin, we are called to repent in humility. And when we maintain this position of humility, we rightly recognize our own sin and know that it is all of God's superabundant grace that we are brought into God's kingdom and kept there. We know that we should never put ourselves above a brother or sister and seek to judge them. The humble person knows their own weaknesses and is slow to judge others. Do you know who you are? Do you know that you are a lost sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Do you know who you are? Do you know that if you are God's child, then you should rightly see yourself as such? One upon whom God has placed his mercy and brought you into his family. Do you know who you are? 
that you're not the lawgiver. You are not the judge, but a sinner saved by grace. One who is humbly dependent upon the grace and the more grace that he has promised. If you really know who you are, you know that grace is your greatest need. Let us pray.